0: Hello everyone, welcome to Beyond the Adventure, a podcast exploring why people took on their own unique journeys and what they learned from their experiences. My name is Gareth Brown and thanks for listening. Today I have Mike Dawson joining me on the podcast. Mike is a two-time Olympic athlete and has participated in multiple expeditions around the world. We discuss Mike's entry into adventure sports, what it takes to really get prepared for a big expedition, and the dynamic of producing content in these environments. We then finish on talking through Mike's most recent adventure, where in a group of five, he trekked with skis and the sled 1,000 kilometres to the South Pole, where he shot a film that is now going into production. Hey, Mike, we're live. Thanks for coming on.
1: No worries. Uh, great to meet you
0: yeah i'm i'm really excited i think uh your experience of really being that kind of top level athlete competing at two olympics adventurer taking on multiple expeditions including your most recent thousand kilometer trek to the south pole and uh and i think just the perspective of also being kind of a film producer fundamentally it's just like uh an eclectic mix of stuff that we can uh could spend probably hours speaking about any of those topics but yeah thanks very much for joining maybe you can provide a bit of a brief intro to almost who you are what you're up to these days and then a little bit around your background and then we see how the conversation goes from there
1: yeah yeah for sure so we start with the hard questions um yes i'm (laughs) new zealander (laughs) so i live uh, in a small town called okiri falls which is uh just south of auckland in new zealand and um For most of my life, I've been an athlete, I suppose, you could say. Um, Competed at a couple of the Olympic Games. Um, But also, I was competing in whitewater kayaking, so it just has this huge crossover to being able to adventure and explore the world and um, find cool rivers and go and try and kayak them. Um, So that's been a huge part of my life. uh, and That's evolved as I've finished competing into different adventures and different things. And um, right now... I'm also coaching for our um our high performance pathways program, so it's all go here at the moment.
0: Ah, that's awesome. It's cool that you can uh, just pass on that next level of knowledge. How is the program right now? Is it got lots of good athletes coming through?
1: Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's an exciting time. Um, So we're a few months out from Olympic qualifications, so everyone's getting excited about the world champs this year. We're they allocate the quota spots, and you can see um, that the athletes working hard and they're extra motivated with Paris just on the horizons in a year or so. So it's exciting times. Yeah, it's definitely fun to be involved. It's
0: very exciting. I think the Paris Games as well is going to be a fun one. I think if anybody can get that spot, it's going to be uh, it's going to be quite the quite the event.
1: Yeah, yeah, Paris would be awesome. It'd be great great to see it and be there hopefully watching from the sidelines
0: yeah absolutely so when you were competing back uh i guess 2012 2016 at your games were you already what was your mix looking like were you strictly focused on the performance side or were you also kind of always exploring the the other side because i feel like your one of your films that came out uh on the the river in pakistan that was probably filmed almost around the same time as rio i guess so it feels like you were doing some things in parallel but how did you how did you manage that
1: yeah so i'd try to do as much um, like adventure kayaking as i could each year and that would you know that would usually happen after the season so you'd have the world champs in september and then i'd write myself a few months off in the calendar and and go and try and find some cool rivers and explore um, And in the season, it was tough because we had a lot of commitments for races and events and training camps and people asking questions, I guess, if you just disappear for a a month in the middle of the season um, and you're not training. So there was a few few commitments there that you just had to be mindful of. But as I got closer towards the end of my career, I think um, more and more of this adventure kiking started popping up in the middle of the season and I'd go for a weekend here or a quick trip somewhere else, but um, most of it was in the September, October, November kind of zone. And, then, and you're right that I was in I was in Rio in the athlete village. I had the camera that came to Pakistan, trying to figure out how to use it in the athlete village and um, and planning that trip from Brazil. And we headed off, yeah, not long after Rio, actually. So it's pretty cool transition.
0: Oh shit! So you were like doing a lot of planning, literally there in Rio.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were sorting out um how are we are going to do it and um who was going to come and getting permits and uh, making plans. And, and the cool thing about that trip is we didn't really have a, a huge um, expectation of what we'd find. We No one had been to Pakistan kayaking for so long and I think Pakistan had been given pretty bad rap in the international media for a long time up until that point and we just went to check it out with the idea if it was too you know not accommodating for us then we'd we'd head back straight out of the country and we just found this most incredible place and the river was yeah amazing huge big white water all day every day and a lot of fun yeah. um, so that stands out as a, a massive trip for me one of the my favorite ones
0: yeah I really want to dive a bit more into some of these individual trips and almost what you took from each but but just that transitioning away from like the competition side of the olympic side to the adventure stuff i think it's a really unique spot with kayaking and canoeing because that you can compete at such a high level in both almost both areas and it's not like a lot of olympic sports where the olympics is the pinnacle like last last week i went to um have you ever heard of these like european outdoor film fests maybe not but it's like a, they put together a range of short films and and there was a one on, uh, is it Muria Newman, uh, the yeah. the French kayaker? And it was a difficult one because uh, the film was in French and it was uh, dubbed in German. So I was trying <laughs> to get through it. But my my takeaways were, uh, but it seemed a bit like to her, it was a bit of a relief when some of the competition side of things ended and there, and she could just focus more on some of the expeditions because of just the the dynamic of being in a team environment and not almost competing against friends and, um, and just almost being a different feeling for being out there like a few days at a time. What what were some of your, what's your reflections on that? What's your feeling in terms of your experience in that really competitive um, field compared to some of the expeditions and trips that you've done? Or do you just almost think of them very differently?
1: They are totally different, I guess. For me, I'm really lucky because I come from a, a small country. So someone like Nouria comes from France, which has a big system. And it's hard to have flexibility within the within the big system programs in Olympic sport that if you're not kind of doing what's accepted as best practice for performance, then it, it gets pretty tough, I think. And, um, and if you've got a passion for getting out and adventuring and spending your weekends uh, sleeping in a tent on the side of a river, running class five all day, then um training on an artificial concrete course week in and week out out makes it pretty hard so um I totally know where Nuri was coming from and um for sure I had moments in my career where I was just questioning about what I was up to while I was spending so much time chasing I don't know what you're chasing in uh, Olympic sport but you're chasing something that drives you every day to go to the course and try and just get a little bit better um whereas out on the river it's just so soulful you're you're just there with your mates there's no um no competition you know like there's very little ego everyone's there to help each other and um and success in a way is just making sure um the whole team kind of gets the end successful and everyone has a good time so they're, they're hugely different i think but they're also very similar um when you get to the the top end in terms of like what performance looks like. Um, in river kayaking, when you're out running a rapid, the consequence can be quite great. It can be a really dynamic sort of environment that if, if you make a mistake, it can be quite consequential um, for injury or worst case, you know, you could, you could pass away on the river. Um, but in, in the competition environment, it's, it's, uh, I guess you get like this real, you um, black and white view of whether you're going well or not and while it's really consequential when you miss a gate or touch a gate and slalom or make a mistake and lose time and the margins are so small um it's it's purely for the performance it's not it doesn't really have any impact on your life in the in the greater sense of it um in a dangerous way uh so that like that that's similar you're trying to get the best out of yourself but end of the day one can be very intense and and one can be very intense for other reasons. So, yeah, hope that makes sure. sense. I <laughs> I <was just> <laughs> getting lost in the
0: conversation. Yeah. No, no, 100%. I mean, especially on the, the river, like when I watched uh, two of the movies that you sent me the links to, uh, there was two scenes in each of them or one scene in each of them where you get the real feeling of like, especially the one in the, in the, The one in Pakistan, you're just kind of paddling away, like your boat's gone downriver, you're just trying to get to the edge, and then you've captured the moment of yourself. Honestly, you look broken. Like, you're (laughs) spitting everywhere, you can't breathe. It looks, honestly, it looks horrific. And in a a very raw way, it's kind of amazing that you did put the camera on that point. But the one that scared me more was... um, was the, the the you know the film where you're underwater for what seems like an age and the camera is just constantly there so it's almost like the head uh, the, the head camera and it makes me nervous even just watching it like the <laughs> that dynamic like the how do you kind of manage some of that fear and also because there is i guess a certain level of statistics and you're really pushing things to the edge yeah how are you mentally preparing for that type of expedition
1: yeah, I mean, like Pakistan was pretty full on that that swim, just because of the size of the river, like the forces that are in play in, in, in the Indus. There's four, probably four or five hundred tons of water in per second, and um, when you transition out of paddling on a concrete safe environment, and then something like that happens, it's you know, it's like it's just so far out of what you're used to for the the you know the near future uh, near you know like in your environment as you lead into something like that so it's really yeah. hard to replicate but um yeah that was scary I was pretty broken and, and nervous and I think after that I just wanted to get off the river but we kept going which was cool and, and completed the descent the the crazy thing in in Angola which is the other film I think you're talking about is yeah that yeah, was exactly. um exactly the other two people in the team so that There were three of us and we paddled this little channel and and two of them got stuck in a feature. And the reason we were paddling that that channel was to avoid a big flat pool, which um, is known to um, have a few crocodiles and stuff in it. Well, we assumed it would have some crocodiles in it. So we were trying to find a kind of like a a sneak route and we didn't scout it and just paddle. And I went off first and straight away I was like, oh, no. This doesn't look super easy to get through. And luckily I made it through and then the other two guys just got stuck in there and um, they both ended up swimming out. So uh, it was quite quite fluid and um, pretty scary, to be honest, to have two of your teammates uh, in the river. Yeah. And you're just trying to manage that environment and, and one had been under the water for a long time as well. So it's quite scary. Um, but I guess... When you get on the river, you know, and, and it's not like we just paddle. Generally, paddle into this stuff. You're looking at the r- the rapids, and you're setting safety, and you're you're trying to solve the puzzle in the in the path of least resistance. And when you do stuff like that quite frequently, you get really really good at just um, making your way through the the chaos. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Maybe we almost um go back a second and, and almost just it'd be great if you can just talk me through like the entire process of putting together an expedition. I mean, how you pick the right teammates, how you do the planning. Like you talked about the one in Angola. I think that you checked out that river for like four years or something like before yeah. actually doing it. Uh, but also the, the fundraising aspect. I think you actually created like a cookbook once to even help with your fundraising for the Olympics or something. But like, I feel like there must be so much that goes into that prep. And then, what it really means to, to get out there what do you, what do you need to pack and um, and maybe later we can talk more about the video production but yeah can you want to talk me through that process yeah, of like totally. how, how long does these expeditions like prepare for how do you plan like how does it all come together
1: so so it's pretty elaborate planning process I guess so I'll run you through Angola so that's because that's quite a, a cool mission yeah so the country had been you know they've had this horrific history of 27 years of civil war um and when we yeah. went there it was exceptionally hard just to get into the country you know like just to, to get a visa and arrive so our first point um once we found the river we, we were scouring on google earth looking for big rivers in africa and we'd heard about the kwanzaa oh, wow. i'd actually seen it in this um old encyclopedia a picture of it and i'd been trying to find the river and then with google earth we could see it and um and see that it was most likely runnable, which is pretty cool. Um, and then we start to kind of like plan, you know, you've got to figure out as best you can, like water levels, what time of the season to go access um, in a place like that. Access can be difficult because it's not like New Zealand where you just go and jump on the river and no one's going to care. There's military <laughs> presence yeah, or exactly. and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, um, you sort of try and get an idea of that and find some contacts on site that might be able to help you, but inevitably it, it comes the, the the timeline comes and you get on the plane and go. Um, and for, for Angola, you're like you're very self supported, uh, self sufficient. Um, there's no real chance for help, I don't think, on the river. Um, we have this great system in New Zealand where if something goes wrong, we have an amazing uh, search and rescue kind of setup. Um, that help a lot of people in the outdoors or weekend warriors or whoever, when something happens, a a chopper will probably be there in 30, 40 minutes, um, which is the same in Europe. Uh, But in a place like Angola, you have no idea how long it's going to take. And there's so many things that can go wrong um, from medical events to wildlife, to something happening on the river, to equipment failure. So you're just trying to work through as many scenarios as you can and, um, and have a bit of a B plan for them, so you can get yourself out of mo- most scenarios. Um, so it takes a lot of time, and that that means we come with a lot of gear, and then head to the yeah. start of the river and hope that it all works out, and and just jump on. And that moment's pretty amazing when you when you travel. I think for our Angola project, we travelled for many days, and then we got to get onto the river, and it's a really cool feeling where you you start, you step over the line, so to say, and um kind of put your yeah your path and fate yeah
0: I can imagine it seemed like uh, especially with the Angola trip I'm not sure at which point it thought it looked like you were more in Namibia at the time when you were traveling through but you were just driving through and then there's a massive herd of elephants coming through that must have been quite the (laughs) the the scene as well as you're getting ready for a, a trip like that so in reality how many more how many months would it take you where you're like in full planning mode in advance to just getting on the plane and going,
1: um, a lot, a lot for sure. So yeah, like yeah. Kwanzaa for Angola, we're we're talking months. Um, but once yeah. you've been somewhere and you, if you're going back, then it becomes a lot easier. So Indus and in Pakistan, that again, that was huge. That was um, yeah, the Olympics were in you yeah, there there in July, I think, um, and we we're planning full planning then. And I think I got on the plane to go in October at some point. So, um, a long time. And also you're, you're working with building up a team and often in these projects, particularly when they haven't been done for a while before people are really keen and then, um, they become not so keen. So you always, uh, like adapting and changing your team, um, yeah yeah so that and that's why we often have small teams as well because it's just easier uh, at the start and then when you go back you can go back with a bigger crew
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and where where did all this almost like start this did like did you just fall into doing family holidays and just um think oh i'm pretty good at this kayaking thing and did like go down the competition route or were you just did you always have this kind of like adventurous spirit from a young age and you were doing lots of different stuff like how did you get into this level of like expedition thinking or what was the first trip that made you think, Do you know what, this could be like my life?
1: <laughs> yeah. um, man. Well, I mean, growing up in New Zealand, it's uh, it's really hard not to be thrown into the outdoors at a young age, depending yeah, on when you grow up or, or how your family operates. But um, I think for me as a youngster, my parents were – were really supportive and really good at just packing up the um, the Ford Falcon station wagon putting the trailer <laughs> on the back with as much outdoor gear as we could carry and, and heading away for the school holidays for I think uh, when in New Zealand school we had you know three two-week breaks during the year and then a massive summer break and I do remember that most of those times we were away from home just out there um, exploring and I don't think we were doing anything too wildly crazy, but just as a kid, it gives you this, um, to notice this cool sense of what's possible or what's out there or where things are. And then that's evolved um, as I've got older and you meet more like, you know, when you're hanging out in the kayaking circles or the mountain kind of scene, you start to meet yeah. more and more people that are into more and more of the same things. And suddenly another trip comes up or someone knows a river somewhere or you want to try climb this thing or do that and um, it just evolves and escalates and suddenly you're doing it every weekend and it's pretty cool.
0: I can imagine. So when you were young, how early did you get into the kind of kayaking uh, scene versus maybe some of the other outdoor sports or, uh, yeah, we were Uh, climbing and other stuff.
1: We were like, um, I was skiing heaps as a youngster, like that was probably our winter sport Uh, and then Summer, I'd spend heaps of time um, playing other, you know, like traditional sports, I guess, at school. And then when I was like 12, I think I started kayaking. Uh, My brother had done it or was doing it. And um, I kind of went along a couple times and went up to the river and had a horrible swim, actually, the first day on this really easy rapid. But I remember it being quite horrible at the time. But now when you look at where it was, it's pretty mellow. Um, (laughs) But uh, that kind of kicked off and I'd just cruise with my brother and his mates and, and go kayaking. And the, the interesting thing from my kayaking early days is that we would go up to the river and learn to kayak on real rivers and paddle and in in, um, do river runs around the place, it, just easy ones. But it was really in the adventure side, like really entry-level adventure side of the sport. Whereas the guys I compete with internationally um, as I got older, they learnt in the slalom space. And then when we met and they'd come yeah. out for training camps, we'd start to do that adventure space. So we kind of inverted it a little bit in, in New Zealand. And I think it's because we didn't have a structure or really a big slalom program. Um, and it wasn't until I was like 15 or 16 that I even realized this sport was an Olympic sport and that could even be a pathway. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was all about the adventure at the start for sure.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And when you started going into developing some of these kind of more expeditions, and I guess, like, how early did you realize, okay, the way to kind of monetize this is I'm going to have to create maybe good content around it. I'm going to have to start filming some of this maybe. At what age did that kind of transition start happening? I guess you were at the perfect age where kind of GoPros, adventure cams and stuff were probably coming out around the perfect time for you as as an athlete in that prime maybe. I don't know. But, um, yeah, how did that kind of transition look like and how did you think about content at the time and making sure you're capturing these
1: moments? Um, yeah, I think when I was young, I realized if I, if I wanted to make this, you know, like a legit career, you had to monetize it somehow. And the storytelling component of your adventure is what's worth money, I guess, you know, like you, yeah, you've 100%, got something, and, 100%, yeah, yeah. you know. You got brands that want that for um to give their products uh, you know, like cred, street cred. Um and so if you can frame that up in a cool way, then yeah, you, you can kind of probably get some cash and some support to go and do projects. Um and I think uh that was when I was young I didn't really didn't really capitalise on as much as I could have probably just because I was learning as I went. And I'd tend to go to more of these extreme races in this, uh, um, extreme racing, uh, like the GoPro games or the Adidas sick line or extreme sport Week in in Norway. And you could, um, you could live cheap and win a bunch of money at the races and, and that would keep you going and going and going. And of course that by winning the races, you became more valuable to your sponsors and you could get better contracts or, or better cash. Um, incentives so that for me uh particularly my early days of slalom i'd be going to these extreme races in the weeks off and trying to win some money to help fund my slalom career um and then as i've got older kind of realized that um just yeah like the the content you can capture um on these adventures is is epic and a lot of um you know like agencies would love to be able to have have access to this and and you can provide a service for for a lot of brands as long as you stay true to your core values you know and don't sell out too much
0: <laughs> yeah yeah but because i feel like uh with the two movies i watch yours has like a really first of all like aesthetically they're really awesome i mean you've also it looks like you've got pretty crazy even like drone shots and stuff and um they're really well put together i feel like the transitions in the movies are really good and you also captured these like raw moments at the right time, like whether it is seeing crocodiles for the first time in Angola or uh, or capturing yourself like immediately after a pretty dangerous situation. But then also the ones that I've seen, you've got this really nice balance with you and your friends and you can feel like you are a team. But like that must have, that isn't like a natural thing I don't feel like. like It might look natural to put people watching it, but that seems to me like it's a shitload of work to get to the point where you can pull something like that together. <laughs> how did, so like how did you... Cause a lot of athletes that, yeah, it's really, really, really difficult to get to that level where you can pull together content like that. Like, how did you make that jump to the production quality that you've got to
1: yeah. Like on all those trips, I guess everyone that comes has some kind of film experience, I guess in a way. Um, so in Angola, we had, yeah. um, two real savvy cameramen with us. Um, one, jake holland who lives in in france actually and he's doing a lot of big mountaineering film film work which is pretty cool um and that just helps you capture more and more different stuff and then you can sort of i guess like manage a bit how you want the thing to look and uh in pakistan we took a guy karen well karen came he jumped on the river too and and was paddling and together the three of us captured as much as we could just shifting the camera around between us which is quite cool but I suppose the when I was young, um, I always had a handy cam, and this was before GoPro game. Uh, GoPro came about, and yeah. I had a handy cam, and I had this big plastic housing, and we'd like try and ratchet it onto our helmets or our boats or whatever, and we kind of took it with us everywhere. And um, unfortunately, you know, like VHS isn't really a thing anymore, but I imagine <laughs> there's some pretty good good uh quality historical footage um historic footage hidden away on some VHS tapes in my parents' basement probably so um I guess in a way that's where we learn and then you watch films and see what people are doing and a lot of the a lot of the good stuff comes out actually in the editing suite and making sure you have a someone that's savvy to help you put it together I think
0: yeah because I was wondering like how um and also those VHS tapes. One day you'll have to go back, and I'm sure you'll be to pull a lot of good stuff out of them. Pull some videos. Yeah. But uh, what do you? What type of like? Are you, what type of cameras are you taking with you on an expedition like what you did in Pakistan or Angola? Is it just? Is it literally just a few GoPros or is it?
1: Nah, nah, it's like, like a discussion? proper. Yeah, it's a it's a massive balancing act because you want to make sure you can shoot it properly, but yeah. you don't want to have kilos and kilos. So thing in in pakistan that first year there we had a um fs7 i think sony big sony cinecam um and a couple lenses yeah. on the river with a the mic then gopros and then um then like a dslr from canon and uh um and yeah. annie old was running a, a small sony setup i can't remember exactly what he did but together those three three cameras were perfect um 'Cause we're also trying to shoot stills at the same time because you you can uh you can do a lot as well with stills in terms of magazine articles and blog posts and, and writing sure. about the, the the expedition. Um and then on this last recent trip to the South Pole had uh had a, a Canon, Cinecam, um a C seventy, and then two D S L R cameras and a couple lenses and my drone. Um and that was that was pretty much my film set up for the for the time but it weighed that i mean that weighed 17 kilos i think so it's pretty heavy when you wow. when you got to carry it with you yeah and
0: you have to carry it all out in a sled right and then the most latest one yeah.
1: Right? yeah 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 try and put it in oh, other God. people's sled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh what what is that balance like i mean you must see it a fair bit now but the balance of people really pushing the boundaries sometimes arguably for the, that cutting piece of content. And as time goes on, especially in adventure sports, becomes um, it's really difficult to get right. Have you ever kind of questioned almost yourself, put yourself in a position where you're like, am I doing this just for me or am I doing, should I do this almost because it's going to be an epic shot? Or have you always just known mm-hmm. what's almost the right and where you are at that time and whether it's a right or wrong thing for you to, to do at that time?
1: yeah i mean it's hard i think there's like there's kodak courage right when someone pulls out the camera everyone gets a little bit more courageous but i don't know i think (laughs) you want to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and um it's an observation probably as as you get older and you look at social media and um how quick things get put on the internet and how it's entertainment for a lot of people but on the other side of the the screen someone's had a real close call or, or come to grief or had a really bad experience. And I think that's a bit of a danger for where we're at with this like rapid fire content that for a second yeah. or two, you can watch a video of someone that, you know, like in and someone's stuck under, in the river underwater for a little bit. And then, um, then the clip's gone and you, you have no idea what happened and there's no education piece around it, around being sensible or something. So I, i feel like it is there for sure and and we would have all done it in our day when we were young um you're trying to prove yourself and uh step the game up a little bit probably when you're when you're a kid but when you get older and look back you yeah nothing's ever worth a shot right (laughs)
0: um, yeah yeah exactly Exactly. And uh so the more the most recent one that you've done, the uh thousand kilometers to the South Pole, was that your first expedition outside of the kind of kayaking scene?
1: Um yeah, sort of. Yeah, it was like my first first expedition polar. It's the longest expedition I've ever done as well. Um uh, yeah, how long is it like fifty I, days
0: or something crazy?
1: Yeah, it was fifty days. It was it was massive. Yeah. <laughs> You almost forget what <laughs> home's like. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> well, I also heard that uh, when you were there, it's like uh, you went at the time when it's just sunlight every minute of the day. Is that right?
1: Yeah, 24-hour sunlight. It's If you walk out of your house at midday on a sunny day, that's what it's like for 50 days. Um, bright, bright oh sun. No, Not even the remotest setting of the sun. Um
0: wow that's pretty crazy wild. before yeah. we t- touch on the weather then where, where did this kind of come from where did this uh there's an idea from you i think that you joined up with some people from norway but like where did all this come from this is this something that's been on your mind for a while yeah how did this expedition just start as a project
1: um so the the expedition was run by this really cool charitable trust in new zealand which is called the Antarctic heritage trust um new zealand and they their job is get this is pretty cool is um they conserve all the historic hearts of the polar explorers on the edge of the the ross sea in antarctica so ah it's amazing like scott shackleton's heart i think scott's got two there's um there's cape Adair, which is the norwegian guy whose name i always forget uh borkovich i think I can't I get the pronunciation wrong. But anyway, that's the first ever building on the continent. Um, incredible. And oh, they've wow. gone through and slowly conserving these places. Uh, they have something like 20,000 artifacts under um, conservation at the moment. And um, so the trust is as they finish this work, they're moving into the space of it, trying to inspire another um, generation of exploration uh, or, or just basically – getting kids out there to explore and the same kind of vibe oh, that what a cool mission,
0: Amazing.
1: yeah it's so cool and so so they put seven of these expeditions on and then this was the the eighth the seventh or the eighth I, I can't remember um right and i was lucky enough to be able to be a part of it and get the chance to shoot it um and yeah yeah that's how that came along and then um, because the, this trip was about celebrating Roald Amundsen, the first man to make it to the pole and make it back alive, um, 150 years since he was born. So um, we had a Norwegian New Zealand oh. team. So there were three Kiwis and two Norwegians. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Did you know
0: them? Did you know the you know team beforehand? Um, or oh, did you kind of meet them <laughs> as, as the the target? Putting um, this team together. Like, are you even involved with this child, which trust before? And like, how how did you even? Yeah, almost. Well, so I've that. done a
1: couple trips with the trust to the peninsula. We'd take a, a couple of young kids right. from South Auckland down there for an Antarctic experience and um, oh, to cool. fuel their passion for adventure, which was pretty cool. But that's a that's a total different type of expedition than this one. And um, and Laura, yeah, sure. uh, who was on the team, I met once um, just before we left. Nigel um, who's the executive director of the trust I've met a bunch of times Um, but the Norwegian contingent I had met we'd met on zoom a couple times before we went away (laughs) and uh, we arrived in Santiago and and said hello for the first time really face to face and I think for me um, if you think about risk or what could go wrong the team environment on a trip like that is so so critical And that was something that I think I was the most anxious about is just going on something like this with people I didn't know and um, particularly going somewhere that I didn't know a lot about, like Antarctica. I had no experience in that environment and and the people you're going to rely on and lean on. You have no idea. Um, Yeah, you just have a very – yeah, it could go both ways, right? (laughs) Luckily, like, it went the good 100%. way. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many variables at play here. <laughs> I think you're right, mm-hmm. though. The team thing is um, is really interesting because, especially when I feel like you really can get to know somebody when, like, someone's really exhausted, or like you've gone through some kind of like very stressful situation together, and you know how to manage each other's uh, emotions and support each other uh, when to put an arm around somebody. But if you're going on like a 50 day trek like this and you don't know how to support someone yeah that's uh that's pretty wild but yeah what, what was the what was the journey like how did you what was the focus what was um what were you kind of what was your day-to-day Could you almost like describe the surrounding as well i mean i'm assuming a lot of white snow but like almost yeah. the feeling the senses of what of, of what you had how cold was it you know like yeah
1: um there yeah like a day i'll give you a, i'll give you a rundown of a day first um so we'd usually kick off about 6 a.m., wake up, um, and then we start boiling water for for breakfast and for, for food during the day and hydration. So that would take us through to about 8.30, so two and a half hours in the morning getting that done, and then um, wow. 30 minutes to pull the tent down, yeah. pack up, and we'd be gone by 9. So yeah, like from waking up to getting out the door, so to say, would take about three hours in the morning. We brought two hundred and fifty mils of fuel per person per day, which is it's a lot for sure. But you never know if there's going to be a storm or something, so we'd we'd have a lot of fuel, um, and then we'd just run that through like a, a normal you know Primus stove with a little pump, and um and that would boil the water. One thing on the water is because a lot of people don't realize, but coastal Antarctica is really close to sea level, um, but the pole is actually at twenty eight hundred meters above sea level so it's this huge climb over 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 the days um and the 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 air density at the pole is is very different um from say climbing to 2800 meters in new zealand so it's a lot harder to breathe yeah and that brings your water boiling temperature down and it takes a, a lot longer for your water to boil and uh, things like makes that sense. yeah so yeah so we'd get up we'd, we'd get the water boiling um, then we'd pack up so we'd we'd actually we'd keep the tents with the poles in them, and we'd just basically like half take them down, roll them up into like a big sausage, and then just jam that in the sled <laughs> um, just it just makes life easier at the other end uh, when you pull it out For and sure. if it 's a windy day makes it um, it'd be almost impossible to put your tent up if you had to put the poles yeah, inside cause, it
0: because I was wondering that like, did you have any days where you actually needed to almost like emergency setup of the of the tent because of like the wind or whatever it might be. Did you ever have any of those throughout the time?
1: Um, we, we'd like often put it up in at lunchtime because we'd, you know, we'd always stop for a bit of a bigger break about halfway through the day just to get s- some more calories in. Um, and if it was cold and by cold, I'm talking, you know, like it's minus 25, 26, 27, <sighs> but there'd be a wind chill. gosh Uh, which could take it down to minus 40 something. So when you're moving, it's all right. You stay pretty warm. But as soon as you stop, you get cold. Yeah. So we throw the tent up and you jump inside it.
0: Do you ever get used to that? I mean, like, does your body adapt to the coldness? It does. Wow. Okay. It's a bit of a relief. (laughs)
1: The first day I arrived there, I was like, oh my God, it's so cold. And then you go do this whole expedition and you leave from the same place you started and you're in your t-shirt at the end. (laughs) Really? Oh my god. Yeah, your body's uh your body adapts real quick. Um I mean it doesn't matter how much you adapt, minus twenty something still really cold. So um you've got to be sensible. If you have uh have your nose out or cheeks out, you'll get frostbite or fingers um yeah, yeah, you get you they get really cold really quick. So you gotta be careful.
0: Because what are you wearing? Like like how many layers and stuff? Like what's your Clothing setup, and you have to really keep almost any piece of skin just covered,
1: yeah. Any skin covered, um, as yeah. much as possible. Um, so I'd wear we'd have these crazy boots, and I'd I actually thought I'd have cold feet. I only wore like thin liners inside my boots, and then a couple layers right. of pretty thick thermals, and then real solid Gore Tex on the outside, um, for top and bottom. Then I'd wear like a, yeah. something around my neck, a balaclava. Um, and I'd have my hood up or a beanie goggles and that means um, nothing was showing on my hands I had like four layers under layers like big fleece layers inside wow. a Gore-Tex glove um, and then we would have puffer jackets which would put sounds crazy but we'd wear on the outside of our of our windbreaker, um, and that just gives oh, really? you more insulation yeah uh, it just protects ah, you a bit okay. better from so the wind, the outside? and it's easier to take on and off because you don't want to take your wind windbreaker off. Um, uh, so if it was cold, sense. you'd be wearing wearing like a a puffy pants over your Gore-Tex pants to keep your thighs warm and your knees warm. Yeah. And um, on the top, I'd basically every day I wore like a real thin Rab puffer jacket over the top, and you could just kind of half have it on oh nice because the temperature changed it was crazy how much the weather changed during the day um yeah
0: it just it just i can't even imagine almost the just how surreal an environment <laughs> it is and like just like how potentially like hostile it can be and it just feels like yeah humans almost shouldn't be there but yeah it's yeah, yeah <laughs>
1: amazing it's that's the thing is it's it's beautiful and it but it's a desert right Yeah. The ironic thing is, you're surrounded by water, but without fuel, you can't access it. And you, you know, one of uh, Laura said this to me. She goes, "It's crazy. You get sunburnt and frostbitten at the same time. Um, that wow. it's just this crazy contradiction of environment. Is you're really warm and you're hot, but you stop for a second and then you're freezing cold, or, or the inside of your body's sweating, like your chest area, but your toes and your fingers are getting frost nips, you know, so like um you're experiencing just both sides of the spectrum all the time and it's obvious, you know, like if something goes wrong, something minor, it could be really serious. And I find it really interesting because if I compare it to kayaking, when you go kayaking and something goes wrong you've got like two minutes usually to get someone out of the yeah out of the river or out of danger. Um but in that environment, those, the first two minutes are mellow. It's like when you get to like eight or nine minutes, but then it escalates hugely quickly. Mm. So if you've got your gloves off or filming, for instance, you'll be filming away um, and you'll be getting the shot and you're like totally, uh, your attention and focus is all in the shot. And then after 10 minutes, particularly flying the drone, your hands will start getting cold and you'll be like, they're getting cold, they're getting cold. And then boom, they'd just be so cold. And you're like, I can't get them warm again. I can't get them warm again. And then you'd spend, you oh, um, well, you couldn't get them back in your gloves because they would like stop moving properly. So you'd be jamming them up your jacket onto your belly, trying to warm up, being like, oh man, I might have push, pushed the boat out a little bit far this time. And uh, I hope I haven't done, uh, I hope I haven't got frostbite. And then slowly they will warm up. It might take an hour or two hours. And then you'd be back into oh, it. you get them so out again. <laughs> it is nerve-wracking and um, yeah so you're constantly managing yourself and particularly when you're doing jobs when you're trying to like put up the tin or film or whatever you've got to got to use your hands sometimes but you're making these decisions that could be quite consequential
0: yeah absolutely for the rest of your day I guess like how much time are you filming and what does the rest of that day look like as you're going into the afternoon and the evenings
1: So we'd, yeah, we'd set off like 9am and, um, we'd ski, we'd usually ski. I think about nine or 10 legs and a leg would be about an hour long. So nine or 10 hours of skiing and in between those we'll have a 10 minute break. So we'd every hour we'd stop for a, for a quick snack and a drink. So we don't stop while we're skiing. Um, and the train would just be in a line of the five of us in a train and the train wouldn't stop moving. Um, wow. And that would take us through with breaks to about 9 p.m. roughly, about 12 hours on the skis. And then we come in, tent up, water on, get warm, um, get dinner in you, and then try to get to sleep as quick as possible, which would be around midnight, I guess, mid-1230. And then filming was a massive challenge because – because the train keeps moving and you're trying, you're trying to set up shots but you got a sled kind of describe it as um putting some gloves on trying to get your camera out with goggles on that are fogging up as you're looking in the view like into your camera trying to set settings so it's getting foggy it's windy and cold um and then trying to run around to move to get the shot of something that never stops and then tying yourself to a to a pole or to like a 80 kilo weight behind you that you're trying to drag while you're shooting. So, filming was filming had its challenges, definitely. Um, but in saying that, it, you get better and better every day, and uh, by the end, you have it pretty dialed. Yeah.
0: Wow, it sounds brutal to be honest, <laughs> like, especially <laughs> no. the filming aspect. I mean, it's, uh, it seems very challenging. How do you? How did you get prepared in any way for this? I mean, I guess. You would have had a fairly decent ski season, I guess, up until what, like September or October in New Zealand. I don't know how long the season goes.
1: But... Yeah, you, you could. I was in Europe, so I didn't ski at all.
0: <laughs> oh shit! So, you, so before you came on this trip, no skiing. You were just you must have been yeah. doing some like I don't know, like endurance running or tri- just some. How did you get prepared for this?
1: So yeah, I couldn't ski because I was coach. I was working in in Europe, and we had the worlds in August, I think. And um, yeah. then I went home, okay. and I just started dragging tires. So tying tires oh, around yes. your waist yeah. and towing tires in the bush, which gives you a real um, good, a good correlation to what it feels like to drag a sled. That was massive help and in the gym, biking. Just I was just trying to get fit at being outside for a long, yeah, long yeah. period of time. And it's kind of a trip that you like, for sure. Um, you want to come in prepared but it's so long that you want to come in fresh and you're actually going to get um fit and in tune during the expedition 100 so yeah
0: yeah yeah wow what were the were there any days throughout when you as a group or even individually just had one or two of those moments where you thought this is i'm not <laughs> sure we should keep going like this isn't like can, can Every morning, nine a.m. And, can, can <laughs> call someone. Can, can we? Can we call someone? Are we going to be okay? And like, I, yeah, did you ever one or two of those moments where you just were really second guessing yourself as to what have you signed yourself up for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think everyone, everyone had bad days for sure, but I would say most of the time we didn't all have our bad days on the same day, which was which can be good and bad, but it meant that we could support and help. Um, for me, I think I had uh, early on about eight days in, I was like, I was finding it pretty hard just under load and the the work I'd been doing to keep moving for the first eight or nine days was, was pretty hard as well as trying to shoot. Um, and I think I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to do this justice uh, trying to film like this. Um, but it got better and better. And then somewhere around the middle, I think, just I feel like we had done. We had a few rest days with weather or short days and I think there was a period there that we hadn't had a day off in like twenty something days and we'd just been like wow. Keeping on going and um and we were tired, like everyone was real tired and getting to the point where people are you know, you're just thumbling and um people are looking exhausted and we just needed to have a rest day and then we were back at it but for me around there somewhere, I was like, oh man, you know, like everyone's looking pretty broken. I'm feeling pretty broken. I think if we keep going like this, we're going to do damage because ultimately like the way you succeed is by keeping everyone healthy, um, looking after everyone, making sure um, you keep an eye out for for the person next to you. And uh, it's real hard when you you don't know people that well to read them as well at the start and, and stuff like that. So, think a few days yeah a few days we were pretty tired um but i suppose you just put one skin in front of the other and then eventually you get there yeah yeah it's kind of it's it's huge but if you take care like if you take care of the hours then you take care of the minutes and you take care of the seconds and then you just got to breathe and then suddenly um suddenly you're there
0: food-wise like how did you manage this like did you take everything in advance or like how did that work and I guess probably a much broader question was what was kind of the overarching like objectives of the trip and like um not only from a from let's say a expedition itself but also what's going to happen with the footage are you going to now go through a process of capturing this and putting it into a film yeah what's um what, what are both those things look like
1: yeah, so food, that's a good question. I lost 12 kilos on this trip, so I th- wow, think uh, good... I was 72 kilos at the end. Um, yeah, I was pretty skinny. I've been working hard to put it back on, but um, we took about four and a half thousand, four thousand three hundred calories per day um, that were out there, and averaging that out, that some days were shorter than others, but um, yeah, for me, I just... I was just hungry and uh, that was made up of we'd have breakfast of oats 200 grams roughly of oats with some sugar and raisins and stuff in it and um, then chocolate uh, like trail mix chips yeah dried fruit snack bars um, lunch would usually have some noodles or like a freeze-dried kind of meal Um, I'd try and get like a thousand calories in at lunch um, and then in the afternoon, I'd just have pretty high carb, sort of drink a lot of sugary drinks and keep eating chocolate and just keep trying to keep going. Um, and as the trip went on, I started getting into eating butter just to try and put some fat back on. Just eating butter? Just, wow. just eating butter, yeah. Or yeah. putting butter into your freeze-dried and just because you're losing fat and then and then you get really cold when you start to get up on the plateau, um, Yeah, you start to struggle with the temperature a lot more um, yeah that sounds that, that sounds really difficult
0: was it also did you go through phases because i know like especially when people are doing certain levels of endurance sport i see this even like in trail running and, and other things but it can be really difficult to actually just try and force yourself to eat did you ever go through those phases or were you always actually genuinely just hungry so you could just keep eating
1: yeah i i feel just from my my life I've been on the mission or been on the on the field playing sport. Is that um, I have a good talent of just eating whatever's in front of me, <laughs> and um, and That's so good. I was pretty good at just I like I kind of see it as fuel in my head if I want to keep moving every day, for 50 days. I just need to keep eating and um, and I frame it up like that. But I know that I know what you're talking about, and sometimes people have have issues eating. And the crazy thing is, you just see straight away this deterioration in energy levels, um, when they miss an hour or two, uh, don't eat enough. Um, and yeah, I think that makes life hard. So one of the, you know, like one of the critical success factors of that trip is making sure you're getting enough calories in every day, all day.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: Wow. So the trip was, um, we started at the edge of the Rone ice shelf. So, um, which is still about 600 k's from the ocean, but that—that's the edge of the landmass of the Antarctic continent. Yeah, I'm with you. And then we we walked from there or skied from there with our sleds around the edge of the Foundation Ice Stream up to a place called the Teal Mountains, and then up onto the plateau, the Polar Plateau, and across to the South Pole. So our trip was about, um, in a sense, trying to re- not recreate, but like lightly step in the footsteps of the. Polar explorers that went before us and, and attempt a trip yeah, from nice. the, the coast, I guess you could say, the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole. So that was the trip. Um, there was a 1,000 Ks in a straight line. Uh, and that took us, yeah, like we were saying before, 50 days out there. Um, wow. And the, the idea behind it was the celebration of Amundsen, but it's also about creating a story that we can hopefully share with a wider audience, and that's where the film comes into play and the, the image and the content that will come out about it. Um, and just trying to document this this cool Norwegian-New Zealand expedition. Uh, yeah, I can polar, imagine. Polar Explorer spin on it. And, and So that's in the works at the moment. Um, these things take time, you know, like sometimes it take 12 months to bring out a film. So uh, in terms of when it's coming out, I can't tell you that, but um, it will be out soon. Oh, amazing.
0: What does that process look like now? I guess it's with a, a team who is going through the editing do they also involve you especially and i guess the other team members to talk through the narrative and maybe the the art of how they want to create it what does that all look like before it gets pushed out maybe in a year's time
1: yeah so it's um yeah we 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 had a bit of a idea of how we wanted the story to look before we went without knowing the specifics so you know like we know we're going to the south pole we know these places so we try to shoot to that because one of the um, the big issues shooting for 50 days is data storage and battery life and equipment and things like that so yeah. trying to be quite strategic on how we shoot and then capture all the moments in between um and they, now they will go to a to a production house and they'll start to break it down into bite-sized stories and put it together to something that's um yeah like a adventure doco length which is cool. And, and I'll be involved in that process as well um, in terms of how the story looks and shots and things like that.
0: Amazing. Wow. So and be, I guess for cool. you, yeah, it'd be really cool. And what, what do you normally do? Is it normally go out to some like uh, kind of outdoor film festival type showings first before you release it a bit broader? Uh, or is it not really a standard? You just kind of see as you get closer to it being ready and, and what the opportunity is could be
1: yeah like for um for this one we hope it'll go film festivals and and for some uh uh, like showings around the world and then we can put it out to bigger audiences on tv on demand etc like yeah what we did with in this you know like in this movie was our first kind of longer length film we made and i don't know if we really crushed the distribution (laughs) we sort of learned as we went and made this epic trailer and we got hundreds of thousands of views on our trailer but then we didn't finish the film for six months after that. So I think we, um, Uh, yeah, so we kind of didn't really capitalize on it, but um, it went, you know, like we went film festivals and then some um, on demand platforms and places like that airlines. So yeah, it's cool. It's real cool learning for us. um, Particularly when we, uh, we're just trying to get it out there for exposure of the story and for our partners that help, Pull the trip off.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing. And uh, I guess for you personally, you've got your coaching happening now. You've got potentially build up to Paris and stuff. What else is maybe on the horizon? Have you already got <laughs> an eye on maybe one or two other rivers, or uh, or an entirely different expedition oh, yeah. uh, moving forward?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I have heaps of expeditions. I spend a lot of time on Google Earth. Finding rivers. Um, <laughs> <I can> imagine <laughs> <laughs> Finding ways to get into rivers. But I'm I'm sure there's something that will come up soon. But right now I guess my biggest focus is um just helping these guys I work with uh get ready for the games. I think it's a big challenge leaving a job like that for two and a half months to go down to Antarctica. Yeah. And I was real lucky that um I was able to do that and they were supportive of it and um but now for me, I've got you know, like these guys are so close to achieving their dreams on the on the Olympics kind of qualification process. That yeah, I'll be pretty dedicated to that for the next uh, little while through to the World Championships, and then and then after that, I can see what the future brings. Amazing! Wow.
0: Uh, so I just have one final question for you, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, asked for this uh, for, for a few other people, but it's uh, it's more just. I guess based on the kind of journey you've been on and almost a different path that you've taken, what would be the the one bit of advice you would give to somebody who was thinking of kind of like starting a new journey of their own? Maybe it's, I mean, from your transition and from competition into expeditions, and you're constantly, it feels like, trying your hand and pushing boundaries and seeing where you want to go next. But yeah, what would be your one piece of advice you would give to somebody who would be looking to try something new
1: in their own lives? Oh man, that's save the hardest question for the last day. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think to me, I reckon like the biggest thing is do whatever you do for the right reason. But at the same time, don't be afraid of how far you can go with a good attitude, you know. Um if you for me, like I can only talk for myself, but there's so many things, you know, Olympics or adventuring that when they're on the horizon they're quite scary and daunting and there's the risk of failure is is massive but just getting out there just putting one foot in front of the other and starting getting to the start line and going um with a good attitude with a positive attitude man you can go all the way every time I reckon and the cool thing about that is when it doesn't happen at least you had a good time doing it so um that's sort of yeah my advice to anyone starting out their journey and whatever that is sport business life just have a good time yeah
0: amazing hey that was uh what a lovely way to end it i feel like that's (laughs) terrific (laughs) advice (laughs) thank you so much for uh, for doing this with me i really really appreciate it it's great to uh great to meet you and uh yeah hopefully we can cross paths again at some point in the future
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: thanks a lot, that's awesome, I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, thanks Mike, uh, I'll speak to you soon then, have a good one. Yeah man, cool. Thank
0: you for listening everyone, Beyond the Adventure is available on all major podcast platforms or you can visit beyondtheadventure.com for all the relevant links. If you get a moment, please share with your friends and family and finally, if you or someone you know would like to come onto the podcast, please reach out to me either by email on gareth at beyondtheadventure.com through the website of beyondtheadventure.com or reach out via my personal social media. My handles across Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn are all garethbrownuk. Thanks again, everyone, and bye for now.